Today is a story about Jesus that is extraordinarily important in our world and for many people is deeply meaningful and it's a story of rebirth and conquering death, conquering the worst suffering that could be. And so we honor the power of that story today and how meaningful it's been to to us in this time of human history. The Easter stories do not occur just in the Christian tradition. Similar stories, as you know, occur in other traditions as well. The story of Persephone, who goes to the underworld and comes back, or Hiawatha, the story that Longfellow invented about death and resurrection and the coming of maize to uh, the culture of Native Americans, the story of Isis and Osiris, which is, by the way, why the president and other people don't want to use that word ISIS to represent a terrorist organization, because it's already got a, a great story attached to it. These are all good stories and powerful stories, and they're all about spring in certain ways. Because spring is about death and resurrection that happens every year before our eyes. Spring is such a magnificent event that human beings found it natural to invent gods and goddesses to celebrate it. It's such an amazing thing. How does that happen? I am still trying to figure that out. I know I should probably take biology 101, but I don't even know that that will solve the mystery for me as to why that occurs every year. What could account for the unbelievable ability the earth has to bring forth billions and billions of complex experiencing creatures Every spring, millennium after millennium. And so it's not shocking that there would be a story about a savior who dies and is buried and then comes back alive again because that's what's happening all the time. So it's not surprising we might have those stories and that they might occur in many forms in many cultures, and that those stories would be unbelievably meaningful to us because they're about our immediate experience of what's happening around us all the time. They're about our own questions about how we fit in to that pattern of experience. So it's not surprising at all that these are powerful stories. Our culture is growing ever more skeptical, I think, about whether or not the old legends actually occurred. And so we're in a kind of transition time in our culture where there's a lot of energy being spent on discussion about whether certain stories actually happened or they didn't really happen. And we have these arguments about things like creationism versus science. Actually, that is all over. Science has won by two touchdowns. 
But it's hard to let go of stories that are meaningful and touch our hearts and souls. And so the stories live on, and everyone who has ever felt miserable still wants to know if there could be some kind of rebirth of joy and hope waiting on the other side of that misery. Is there a power available to us that transcends suffering and conquers all of our deepest sorrows, even death? Does that exist? And everyone would like to know the answer to that. The story of the resurrection is a way to offer hope to that deep question. It's a way of saying, yes, there is a level of love available within human experience that can withstand even great suffering and come back and be joyful and strong and hopeful and optimistic once again. So you probably know that there are these many resurrection stories in mythology, but they are all symbolic ways to cope with the human capacity to face overwhelming challenges of life and still come back strong and healthy and able to affirm life and affirm love as the path of life. It would be a big mistake to throw away all these beautiful stories, even if we find that some of them are not factually true. That would be like throwing out our car because it doesn't do the dishes. I want you to think about that. It would be worthwhile here to mention that the gentleman who's speaking here on April 9th, John Shelby Spong, is one of the people who has really pioneered this way of reframing religion. He's one of the people who very early on began to say we need to reframe religion in such a way that we don't need literalistic stories to make the meaning. Not only do we not need to take those stories literalistically, but actually it won't help to do that and may well be a hindrance. So letting you know that one of the players in that transformation will be with us in April, and, and I hope I'm looking forward. I got about three good questions I'm going to ask him. This morning, as I was thinking about the rebirth of the earth, and in the last week thinking about it, what occurred to me that the legend is really full of power right now in our culture might be the story of the great flood. According to that old legend, the Hebrew God became upset with the humans he had created, and he sent a great flood to wipe them all off the face of the earth. And of course, just about everyone knows the story of Noah's Ark, how one family of humans and one pair of each species was saved from the flood and how they survived to repopulate the earth. But everything else was destroyed. So why should we care about this story? Perhaps we should care about it because sea levels are rising and ice caps are melting and glaciers are falling into Prince William Sound at an alarming rate and some islands are already disappearing. Perhaps we should 
care about it for that reason. In the Bible story, Noah warns his neighbors of the coming tragedy. He goes out. As a matter of fact, I grew up with a Southern Baptist uncle who was a preacher, and I can still remember him telling this story. And he would pretend like he was Noah, and he would pretend like he was going to talk to the neighbors, and he would say, you know, there's a big flood coming, and we've got to do something to get ready. And then the neighbors would say, well, you know, it doesn't look like it to me. The sun is shining, and, you know, it's a beautiful day. We're going to play golf this afternoon. Doesn't look like there's any flood coming to me. And Noah would go tell somebody else, there's a big flood coming. And they would say, well, we're taking a drive up to uh, Chicago to visit our relatives. Looks pretty good. And then, of course, the flood came. And you know how that story goes. Perhaps this is the stage of the story we are in right now. That good old denial phase. Maybe we are a bit beyond denial. Many humans do know that the floods are coming. And yet it's hard to galvanize the support needed to take action. The climate talks in Paris were certainly a ray of hope. And I'm so pleased that uh, Carol Lowe and Sherry Dearborn carried over to Paris a big group of these lovely ribbons that we wrote our names and hopes on and took them to the climate conference in Paris. What a beautiful symbol of hope that we can do something. We can be the rebirth of the earth. This past week, Diane and I had the pleasure of being in New Orleans to visit our Chinese exchange student daughter, Wendy, and have a little vacation too. You know, just over 10 years ago, the city of New Orleans took a direct hit from Hurricane Katrina, the third strongest hurricane in American history. 80% of the city was flooded. Most of us have seen those pictures on TV, right? We've seen people on top of their houses, waving, having signs, rescue us. We've seen the destruction pictures. 1,400 people died in Katrina. 1,400, immense property damage. Thousands of people stranded without their homes. The tragedy of Katrina was due to a natural event, but it was also precipitated by human failures of judgment and commitment. One of the many failures was a decision in 1965 by the Army Corps of Engineers to use shorter steel pilings in the levees in order to save money. So that was an engineering decision. During Katrina, there were 50 breaches in the levees, bringing the floodwaters rushing in, wiping out everything in their path. And once the emergency occurred, the government response was horribly inadequate, as you undoubtedly remember. Not only was the government not ready, despite being warned, it was ineffective, it was bumbling, it was dishonest, appeared in many ways to be racially biased and in many ways lacking in compassion. The overwhelming problem of New Orleans is being built on land, much of which is below sea level. The land is lower than the sea level. But with climate change and rising sea levels, hundreds of cities will become New Orleans. 
They will all be more susceptible to the next hurricane, and some will disappear entirely. Someone said to me the other day something about a city disappearing, and I just thought, oh, that's, no, that's not going to happen. I'm like the guy who's going to go play golf this afternoon. I don't think that's, that's not really true. But we do have a chance to make changes. And I've had it explained to me how New Orleans has taken steps to increase its flood readiness. Thank goodness for that. Other steps remain to be done. And yet, in that city, if, if you've been there, you know this, there's a sense of life, of charm, of genuine rebirth. Looks like a reborn place to me. Even a huge population of human beings can have a near-death experience, can really die, you know, and then come back, come back to life. Not just survive, but thrive. Hallelujah. The ancient flood stories appear in many cultural frameworks, just like the resurrection stories. There are all kinds of resurrection stories, all kinds of flood stories. There are many, many ancient cultures, stories. It is certainly possible there was an actual ancient flood that covered much of the earth, around, perhaps around the Mediterranean. And that human life survived that challenge, and that is wonderful news. But would we want to go through a global Katrina experience to find out if we are capable of surviving another such story? None of us wants to find that out by personal experience. We are in the stage of warnings and beginning steps towards a comprehensive approach. But many people in our country, particularly, particularly in America, it seems, are still in denial. It is not God's voice that warns us in 2016, at least not God as it was understood in those days, but the voices of scientists who now have the role of being the prophets. The scientists have become the prophets. I see some scientists here today. Congratulations. That is a great challenge that is before us. The message of this day that we call Easter, a holy day for Christians, but also deeply linked to European paganism, ancient Egyptian religion, and the myriad of ways all over the earth that humans celebrate spring. Those, those, that's a universal holiday. How could anybody not celebrate that? Is that hope is always justified. I gave a sermon a couple weeks ago about James Luther Adams. Talked about the five smooth stones of religious liberalism. The fifth stone is that there is justification to be optimistic. This is part of our faith. There is, there is justification to be optimistic. We have reason to hope. We always have reason to hope. That's part of this day's story. Even in very bleak times. Even the inevitable pain of death itself does not have the final word. For the power of nature is so complete that it even uses death to create new life. 
It turns death into new life. Creates more creatures to experience and love and more consciousness to enjoy. This huge creative process brings together all the elements of our lives, even our sorrows, to create ever more fascinating works of art upon the earth. But let all creatures know this, that we must act wisely in cooperation with this great process. We must learn its ways and bring our way of life into meaningful relationship with this great wisdom. That is our hope. That's the way our path lies, is to bring our ways of life into meaningful relationship with the greater creative process of this planet. If not, there will be a price to pay. I hope we will be wise creatures building our way of life in unity with the greater reality that has created us and is our final destination. Yesterday, I was waiting in O'Hare Airport for one of those mythical flights to Peoria (laughs) that sometimes get canceled. I don't know exactly why, but I bought a Chicago Tribune paper as part of my passing the time. On the front page of the Trib was an article about a group of ministers on the southwest side of Chicago who were leading a campaign for a day without murder in Chicago. That's the campaign. One day. One day without murder on the streets of Chicago. That's the goal. Now, that may seem like a small goal, but in Chicago, that would be an unusual thing to happen. That's how high the murder rate is. So I got captivated by this article, and I read on. And as I read it, I was surprised and delighted to read that my fellow UU minister and wonderful friend for over 30 years, whose name is Karen Mooney, and some of you have met her, was one of the organizers of this group. I know some of you know Karen because she's preached here, actually, and she has sung in this church as well. She has a gorgeous voice. Karen, in a way, is the one who started this campaign in Chicago. Her church decided to put up a sign that said Black Lives Matter in front of the church, and they got, boy, did they get feedback. They really got whomped. Some people thought that they were wanting to kill policemen. There's so much charge around this. I can assure you that was not their intention. And Karen said she didn't know what to do. So she started going around and visiting the other ministers and saying, what should we do? And that's how they came up with this idea of having a day without murder. And that they would march and have workshops and and celebrations and the goal would be not to have any murder in Chicago on Easter Sunday. That's the goal. 
course, there's no guarantee of success, but there is a deep sense of inspiration in this project. These ministers, <clears throat> one of whom is a good friend of mine, and probably some of which I probably wouldn't agree with on a lot of things, they believe in the possibility of rebirth. They believe there can be healing, that we can see our lives together in a new light. Some may link this possibility with a Christian story. Maybe some won't. Or maybe they'll link it to another religious tradition. But they all understand, like the meditation, that we must do the work to redeem our people. We must rebuild the cities. We must bring all our human wisdom to the climate change problem that we have created. But it's also true that we are creatures of a creative universe. And this universe knows how to create planets. It knows how to create rabbits. It knows how to create billions of flowers every year. Appears to be almost effortlessly. And we can tap in to that wisdom and align our lives <clears throat> with that wisdom and make that our way of life. There is hope. This could be the day. <clears throat>